The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. And I responded immediately without any hesitation. I said, the best seminary? Definitely North Shore Baptist Church. I had the great privilege of studying at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which I consider to be an incredible institution that is excellent in training pastors in theology. However, I think it's important for everyone that is here to know, seminaries do not produce pastors. Churches do. When I was a youth minister at North Shore Baptist Church about 10 years ago, there were many occasions when there would be a challenging situation that arose in the church, and I had no idea what to do, and sometimes the elders of the church weren't even sure what to do. And when those things would take place, their pastor, Ed Moore, would always look me right in the eyes, and he would say to me, they don't teach you this in seminary. Right now, I'm preaching through the book of 2 Timothy, and Paul is encouraging his spiritual son to be a vessel of honor which is useful to God. Last week, we considered the beginning of Paul's plea to be useful as a vessel in verse 22, which goes like this, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. So now we're going to see Paul pivot a little bit in his conversation. If you're looking at the sentence or if you're looking at the paragraph, it seems like there's a big difference here, but really his thought is not altogether changed. Paul is going to shift from speaking about false teachers and how we are to separate from them, and now he is going to begin speaking about how we are called to deal with people who are following false teachers who are within the body. So those not who are teaching false doctrine, but those who are listening to the false teachers. What do we do with them? Please follow along, beginning at verse 23. He says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray. God, I do ask that today as we come to your word, you would feed us. As we just sang a few moments ago, that you would speak. Lord, we want to listen to you and to what you have to say. We desire to know you as you are, not as we have imagined you to be. We desire to be changed when our mind is changed about you, that our lives would therefore conform to what you have said. God, please give us grace today to hear and to believe, not just to believe in an intellectual way, but to believe in such a manner that it will cause us to live differently that it will cause us to be different, to be like Jesus. God, I pray that if there is anyone here who is struggling to obey or who is being trapped by a snare of the devil, by false teaching, that you would change their mind and therefore change their direction. God, I ask that if there is anyone here who is currently not saved, that they have an appearance of godliness, but 
They don't even understand. They are lacking its power. They have denied the truth of the gospel in their heart. God, I pray that if there is someone here like that, you would break them down and show them who you are and redeem them. May that be a form of grace for them today. And God, if there is anyone here today that does not know you and they know clearly in their minds that they don't know you and they don't want to know you, God, I pray that you would break their pride and show them the love of Jesus and that they would come to know you in a saving way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today's sermon is very simple, very basic. We're going to break it down into two points. Point number one, false doctrine is dangerous. Point number two, faithful disciples learn discernment. So point number one, false doctrine is dangerous. Doctrine is just a a fancy word for teaching. Oftentimes when you see the word doctrine and you see the word teaching in the Bible, they are the same Greek word. So when our Bible speaks of doctrine, what is it actually saying? It is referencing all of the truth that has been once for all delivered to the saints. And doctrine matters. It matters because God matters. And who God is really matters. Listen, nobody could ever, ever read 2 Timothy or any book of the Bible for that matter and walk away saying to themselves with an honest honest opinion, you know what, God just really does not care what I believe. He just doesn't care what I think about him. No, God has revealed himself and he has done so clearly in his word. And he is desirous that all who follow Christ would know him as he truly is. One of the worst things about our sin nature is that it naturally causes us to begin to distort what God is really like. What happened in the Garden of Eden when the serpent came? He began to tell Eve, God doesn't want you to eat this because he doesn't want you to be like him. And he began to distort the mind of Eve in terms of what she believed to be true about God, what she knew to be accurate about God. We must not imagine God to be different than he truly is because anything we imagine will cause us to lead into error and sin. So if we're going to hear the warning of Paul this morning, we have to ask ourselves this question. What is he actually getting at? What's the point? What are the stakes? What's, what's at risk here? In verse 26, it refers to false teachings being a snare of the devil. When I was growing up, I had... Uh, I grew up in Kansas, very different than Long Island. Uh, There was a guy in our church named Dick Cooper. He was a trapper. That was his job, to trap and skin animals. That exists out west of here. And one of the things that I did as a homeschooler in middle school was I went out with him once a week for about six months to go trap animals. Not one of my favorite things that I've ever been involved with. Never really wanted to be a trapper, but it was a homeschooling educational thing. One of the things that I learned about as I followed around this massive monster of a human being was the way that he would take these massive traps and he would pull them open and lock them so that when an unsuspecting animal would walk into it, it would snap closed and there was no hope of escape for that creature. That's what he is talking about here. Not that they had metal traps back then, but the idea that there is a snare. There is somebody who has carefully crafted a trap for you. And that trap was made not by human hands, but actually made by the hands of the devil himself. He says there is a snare of the devil, and he even goes so far as to say that those who have believed false doctrine are currently snared in that trap. 
So when we talk about doctrine, it is significant and it is important because those who have believed inaccurately have fallen into the snare of the devil. So false doctrine begins with wrong thinking, but its result is wrong actions. One of the clear truths that we see consistently presented in First and Second Timothy is that false doctrine had influenced the church in Ephesus. And it had not only influenced them in an intellectual way, but it had led them to outward patterns and expressions of sin. Now, I'm not going to take away a lot from next Sunday's sermon, but if you want to see the outworking of false doctrine, read the first 10 verses or so of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, and you will see the ultimate result of what wrong teaching will do to someone's life. I think it is important for us to see that even when it is just at the thought level, though, doctrine is dangerous. Even when we just begin thinking inaccurately, it is dangerous. And it's dangerous because the Bible teaches that truth matters. 20 out of 21 epistles in the New Testament contain correction or rebuke against false doctrine. In fact, some of those books, such as Hebrews, or most particularly maybe Galatians, are written specifically for the purpose of saying, oh, you foolish Galatians, how quickly you have left the gospel and turned turned away. Who has bewitched you? He's writing to tell these people, you must think accurately. You must correct these false teachings. If you want to know How to get everything wrong, just be like the Corinthians. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians because it seems like every area of church was messed up in that congregation. And he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians to correct them. And as you read these things, it's not that he's just correcting their actions. He's correcting the thinking behind the actions. Why is there so much much theology in those in the beginnings especially of those books? It's because if you don't get your theology right, your practice will also be wrong. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 is where we're going to begin a little bit of a ride through the pastoral epistles. What I would like to do for the next few minutes, and I, I really want you to engage with me, these passages will be up here on the screen for you. We are going to just basically stroll through the, the three pastoral epistles. That's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus. They are called pastoral epistles because Paul wrote them not to a whole congregation, but to a pastor of a local church. And so we're, we're going to look through, although we could do this on uh, in 20 of the 21 epistles, we're just going to look at these three, and I'm going to cherry pick just a few of the myriad of times it makes it clear that doctrine is so important. So we begin... 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 should be up here on the screen for you. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. One of the patterns that you will probably notice as we are going through this little survey here is that Paul is going to target certain things, particularly myths and speculations and genealogies. What are those things? Now, although we don't know all of the specific details about what they are getting into here and what all it entails, we can make an educated guess. It is likely that many people were using their Jewish heritage and genealogical records in an effort to gain credibility for their teaching. What do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. 
Luke Amorelli comes to church on Sunday next week, and he says, you know what, I, I discovered something really significant. I am a direct descendant of King David. I didn't even know I was Jewish, but guess what? I'm a direct, I, I have all the evidence, I am a direct descendant of King David. And then as he begins to speak false teaching, perhaps, he is going to begin to draw people to himself and say, I have the authority, I'm from the kingly line of David, which is of the tribe of Judah, same tribe as Jesus. And they start these genealogical debates. And think about how much more significant that debate would be if you could prove, you know what, I'm the second cousin twice removed from Mary, the mother of Jesus. I am biologically related to the Messiah. Don't you think you should listen to me? And it seems as though there were probably people coming in with those kinds of genealogical arguments, and then they would come in with false teachings, what Paul calls myths. And he says, they're just making stuff up. And they're coming in and they're telling all sorts of lies. So you're going to see that that comes in consistently as a pattern as we go through this survey. Let's jump right back into our overview 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Certain persons, by swerving from these, what are these? Good doctrine. Have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. False teachers talk a lot. They know very little truth. These are the exact kind of people that are in view in the passage that we are looking at this morning. These are teachers who should not be teachers. They are teachers without knowledge, blind leading the blind. First Timothy chapter four, verses one through two says, now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. These people are not morally neutral. False teachers are not morally neutral, and their thoughts are not morally neutral thoughts. False doctrine is literally called the teaching, or if you look at the word again, teaching is the same as doctrine, the doctrine of demons. This does not come from God. And just a few verses later in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, Paul wrote to Timothy about these same issues, but he stated it more positively this way, telling Timothy, this is what you should do. He says, if you put these things, which are, again, these things, right teachings, right doctrine, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of, faith, of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Once again, you'll see there's a juxtaposition here. Those who follow these silly myths are not training themselves for godliness. In contradiction to that, your responsibility is to hold fast to good doctrine and pursue godliness. Just a little bit later, in verse 16, he adds, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, which again is the same word for doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Once again, we see that a lot is at stake. This is a salvation issue. So Paul pushes the pedal even further to the floor when we get to the end of 1 Timothy, and he says in chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, if 
anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That is pretty harsh. He is really going after these people who have turned aside from the truth. And he refers to them, once again, let me highlight, he says that they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels. That's a sign that these people are not genuine in their faith. Hold on to that characteristic in your mind because we're going to come back to that in a little while. In the last, very last words of 1 Timothy, we find these words in chapter 6, verses 20 through 21. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you this deposit this treasury guard it avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge for by professing it some have swerved from the faith grace be with you now a few weeks ago gene preached to us using this unforgettable imagery of gangrene and how it infects a person's body but don't forget what he was teaching about what that gangrene represented. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. So what is Paul calling gangrene? What is that actual infection that needs to be cut out? It is the irreverent babble of false teachers. It is false doctrine. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, Paul gives a grave warning about the future of the church at Ephesus. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, again, the word doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We could also spend a lot of time looking through the book of Titus, I'm not going to do that this morning. I think we've made a point. But I'll just summarize the entire book of Titus. It's only three little chapters. But what is Paul getting at? What can we boil that book down to? Simply this, Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. It's that simple, Titus. So perhaps you're thinking, I get it. (laughs) I get it. I get what you're saying. Doctrine is important. But I think it's really significant that we say that in this pulpit. Here's why. I know that when I was growing up, I left a church that was very unhealthy and could not find a church that was healthy. And I was very disillusioned. And I would, I would speak generally and broadly about the quote-unquote American church. I don't like the American church. And I don't like it because we're all divided over doctrine. And who cares about doctrine? If we're Christians, we should just be Christians, right? We should just love each other and kind of ignore some of these specifics and just stop fighting with each other. Here we see in the word of God, it is clear that doctrine matters. It is a significant thing to say, you know what? God's told us this. He wants us to know this, but you know what? Big deal. Let's just forget it that it's even there and kind of minimize everything to its lowest common denominator. I want you to see that it is significant that doctrine matters, but I also want you to see that 
it is not only the pastor who is called to guard against false teaching. So in this passage, particularly, Timothy is in view. He is speaking to him and he says that the servant of the Lord must be. That little statement right there, he is talking to Timothy as a pastor, declaring that he himself must be obedient. But you are also called to do what we are called to do as pastors. So Mike, Steve, Jim, we are called to guard the flock. We are called particularly, as it says in 1 Peter chapter uh, 3 and 5, that we are to shepherd, shepherd the flock of God that is among us. We are to do that. However, every single Christian has a responsibility to know the truth and to guard that truth. And if you hear me say anything that is outside of the boundaries of Scripture... You need to speak with me about it. Make sure that we are on the same page here. Make sure that there is actually a disagreement. And then let's go to the word together. You have every right and responsibility as a member of this church to hold me accountable to the truth and the other pastors as well and the other members as well. That is not only my job. That is your job too. We are called to guard one another. In the days of the early church, if you were going to listen to a false teacher you actually had to travel somewhere to hear them. Or you had to invite them into your church to speak and give them an opportunity. You have the floor, sir. Or perhaps you had to invite them into your home as they were traveling from town to town and say, sure, have a bed in my guest room and let's talk over breakfast and you tell me everything that you've learned. But those things are strictly forbidden concerning false teachers in the New Testament. However, now false teaching is far more accessible. According to one stat that I read, if you were able to take every YouTube video that exists and put it into a single playlist and then just click play, I'm not talking about future ones that are being made now, I mean what's currently on that website, and just click play, it would play nonstop without ads for 216,000 years. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube that none of us will ever be able to see because we won't live long enough to view it. Plus, there is an additional 300 hours being uploaded every 51 seconds. The internet is such an amazing tool. It can be used for the gospel in so many incredible ways. It is being propagated and filled with truth. However, it is also the platform of choice for many influential false teachers. So if you have a question about the Bible, Google is probably not your best resource. Click and scroll with caution. Likewise, be very wary of televangelists. I think for the most part, televangelists are kind of going away because I think people are starting to see through them a little bit more, thank God. But be wary of them. Most people don't get famous speaking the truth. That doesn't scratch people's itch. Joel Osteen has become perhaps the favorite whipping boy of many favorite pastors and when we point out exactly what we are called to be and what we are called to avoid, his name arises often. And that's probably because he has built a megachurch off of easy believism and the prosperity gospel and simply ignoring the gospel. And millions of people have been swept up by him into the snare of the devil. They've been drawn into a massive building hearing a lot of false doctrine. And not just Joel Osteen, but many men and women just like him. So the Bible is clear. False teachers are bad, right? False doctrine is bad. But what about all the people who listen to them? This is more challenging. 
What about all those people who go to those churches or who watch them on television or who listen to their podcasts or who watch them on YouTube or find their information through newsletters or any other outlet? What about those people who are beginning to be persuaded? What are we called to do with them? Or is every last person who attends those churches condemned to the same fate of heretics? This question leads us now to our second point, which is that faithful disciples learn discernment. One of the more perplexing passages in the Old Testament is found in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 through 5. It says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then the next words, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. How is that not a contradiction? So which is it? Are we supposed to answer a fool? Or are we supposed to not answer a fool? Now, we could seemingly ask the very same question of our passage that we're looking at in 2 Timothy chapter 2 today. Notice what it says in verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Answer not a fool according to his folly, Timothy, lest you be drawn into his quarrelsome ways and become a quarreler, a fighter, just like him. However, Paul is not advocating peace-at-all-cost methodology here. He is clearly expecting Timothy to address false doctrines by, quote, correcting his opponents, how? With gentleness. Yes, you must do it gently, but you are called to correct them. Why? Quote, so that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. There must be a desire in our hearts to see the people who are being caught up in this snare of the devil to call them to repentance, call them to right thinking, call them to understand the truth of the scripture. So what are some evidences that you should simply shut your mouth and not talk to this person? How do you know when you're called to open it? First of all, I want you to remember that this letter is being written to him as a pastor. And in this section, Paul addresses the uniqueness of Timothy's position by saying, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome is in no small coincidence, the exact kind of phrase that we see in Paul's first letter to Timothy when he was speaking about the standard which must be held by an individual in order to become a pastor at a church. Pastors are uniquely called to guard the flock of God. Mike and Steve and Jim, we are responsible to do that. But I want you to understand that before God, again, you are also responsible. So in what way is he responsible that you are not? What ways are we as pastors responsible that you may not be? Well, one of the things that you should do if you're concerned that there is false doctrine going on within the body, bring it to the elders so that we can help think through carefully what is going on there. It may be the best move for you to come first to us and discuss it so that we can approach the person graciously and knowledgeably. So here's the first question that you should answer yourself. What is your purpose? What is your purpose in actually confronting this person so that God would receive more glory or so that you will win? False teaching robs God of his glory. We need to understand that that's part of the reason it is so bad. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely perfect. Jesus is radiant in his splendor, and his attributes are most clearly and rightly seen when we clearly and rightly understand what happened at the cross. That God sent his beloved son, that he sent his beloved son to die for sinners like you and I, that he sent his son to save, to seek and save the lost, to hunt us out, to find us and to grab us and to arrest our heart and to bring us back to himself. Do you understand that this message of the gospel is absolutely perfect? And since God is perfect and his gospel story is perfect, any deviation from his perfect revelation of himself or his gospel will necessarily bring him lower. It will cause what is being said to be less than perfect. Every single false doctrine that has ever been imagined has only brought God down in the minds of men, not elevated him. So, of course... We should want to have these kinds of conversations with people who are straying. We should desire to give God all glory by saying, you're messing it here. You're you're not understanding God clearly. Of course, we should desire to help people escape from the snares of the devil that have been laid out for those who are listening to false teaching. So that question is, do you actually want that? Is it actually in your heart to give God more glory and to bring this person to repentance? Or do you just want to fight about it? Are you also quarrelsome? Do you just want to get into it with them? Listen, I know most of the people in this room have Facebook. Facebook is a terrible place to try to correct someone's thinking. Nobody there is interested in an actual conversation. They are interested in defending their position. doesn't matter if they know much about it. Maybe they're really smart. Maybe they have their their position well-defined in their mind. Maybe they don't. It does not matter. They are going to defend it because you are presenting it to them in a public forum. Don't use Facebook to confront false thinking within the body. That That is evidence that it is not in your best interest to get at their good and God's glory. That is evidence that you want people to see your shining intellect. So that's the first question. Do you just want to quarrel, or are you in the conversation for the good of their soul and the glory of God? If that's true, you know my heart is clean here. I'm not trying to just win an argument. I believe this is actually taking away from God's glory, and this person is in danger. The second question that you have to ask is one in reverse. The same thing backwards. Is this person actually just interested in a quarrel? Because there are a lot of people like that. It is probably evident to you that our modern world is much more inclined to debate than it is to dialogue. Most people don't want to actually reason together. Rather, most people would just take any disagreement that you have with them as an open invitation to bludgeon you as often and as hard as they can with whatever they believe over the head with their opinion until you are so beat up and exhausted that you just want to cry out for mercy. Okay, I give up. I give up, I give up, I give up. They just want to be quarrelsome. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Predicated in that thought is the idea that they themselves are, are uh, troublesome. They, are, they have a problem. And we will become like them if we respond in kind to them. Some people are just looking for a fight. And for those people, your primary responsibility before God is to focus on your local body and not to fight and disrupt the unity. So if those people are off in another part of the world, is that ultimately your responsibility to correct their thinking? If you can do so lovingly seeking to convince them, 
build a relationship and begin to teach them truth, that's great. If you're going on Facebook and just going on forums, different places, to fill out information to say, you guys all got it wrong, we got it all right, that's not ultimately probably very helpful. Most people don't want to actually dialogue when they're even seeking to correct lovingly. And most people approach somebody who is confrontational and they get riled up and they themselves become confrontational. Do not answer a fool according to their folly. You are not an apostle and I'm not either. And Peter commands us to focus here in our churches when he says shepherd the flock of God among you, like we mentioned earlier. That is also what I'm calling you to today. Primarily focus what I'm saying today in this body. So don't go down the street to the next church over and say, hey, you guys, you got a problem. You're thinking incorrectly. Focus your minds and your thoughts and your efforts and your energy on working to build this place as a place of solid doctrine. These are the people that you have covenanted together with, that you are marching towards heaven together with hand in hand, desires to be presented holy before the Lord. So ask that question of yourself. Ask a lot of questions to the person. Make sure that you understand their position. Look, I think that you might be going in the wrong direction. I'm not sure. Can you help me understand what it is that you're saying? Sometimes the best ways that we've avoided false doctrine in the churches that I've been a part of is having Bible studies where people will say something that is incredibly off the wall and you say, whoa, 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 hold on. What do you mean by that? And one of the best things that I've learned is not to just jump on them immediately and say, whoa, you've got it all backwards. You're probably not even a Christian because that is an anti-Christian thought. Now, the best thing to do is begin to develop what does this person actually think about it because many people don't even realize that they have contradictions in their own structures of belief. So ask a lot of questions. Draw the person out. See what they actually believe. Part of what he is calling Timothy to do here is teach them with gentleness. That's what teaching with gentleness looks like. It looks like finding the errors and lovingly seeking to apply truth to each one like a doctor would to cancer. You seek to find it and you seek to cure it carefully paul tells titus what to do what, though with people who don't want to receive that who are just looking for a fight people who come in and they're seeking to use false doctrine to divide um, mike we've seen some people like this in our time together in ministry there are people who come in and their goal is not to even convince people of what they're saying they just want to be divisive Paul says to Titus in chapter 3, verse 11 of his book, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, based on those, based on those qualifications we just saw, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Once when I was serving on staff at a church, there was a man who began visiting. Uh, he was a very friendly man, and as I began to get to know him, uh, he was very kind to me. He never said anything to me or about me that I found to be less than, than loving. However, he was also very critical and rude and unkind towards other people that were in the church that were not in leadership. He had some different perspectives th than some other people, and... He made those differences very well known. Everybody knew that he had a difference of opinion. And he did this not in a loving one-on-one -on -one manner, but in a very open, very clear, divisive manner. And after confronting him twice, it became very clear that he did not care that his words were damaging people. 
that his words were hurtful to people, that he was causing people much pain, and he was dividing the church. And if he had been a member, we would have immediately begun the process of church discipline. But since he was not a member, I was given the authorities by the other pastors to say to this man, look, I care about you. I care that you repent. I care that you honor God in this way. But you were dividing the church, and I have to ask you not to come back. I did that. Why? Because of what Paul says to Titus. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with them, because this kind of person is warped and sinful and is self-deceived. So, what we need to understand here is that faithful disciples are going to grow in their ability to sniff, sniff out false teaching. And it's usually pretty easy because false teaching often is accompanied by clear patterns of sin. And faithful disciples will also grow in their ability to discern when they should confront someone and when they should not. So here's where things get a little bit tricky. There are probably about, let's say, 60, 60 70 people in this room right now. And if we really drill down to the nitty-gritty of every single thing that you believe, I think that we would find that none of us are actually 100% on the same page about every little thing that we believe to be true from the Word of God. I think that all of us probably are in various stages of understanding. So how do we know when somebody moves from simple ignorance or confusion and into indulgence in a sinful way of false teaching? It should be our desire to grow in this kind of discernment. When is something really significant enough to make it into a big deal? So I'm going to share with you something that's been very helpful to me in my walk with the Lord. In 2004, Dr. Albert Moeller wrote, wrote an article in Christianity, uh, Christianity Today called A Call for Theological Triage and Christian Maturity. I'm curious, has anyone ever heard of theological triage in this room? I think... Mike is a uh, voracious reader, so he's probably seen this before. But I think it's important that we understand what he's getting at here. He explains that triage is simply the way that we determine the value or importance of something. Triage is the art of evaluating severity of need within patients, for example, at the hospital. So you go to the emergency room. You have your thumbnail got slammed in the car door, and your thumbnail is turn black and starting to fall off and it hurts like crazy and you're, you've got an ice pack on it and you, you have someone drive you to the hospital, you get to the ER and you go in there and you sit down and they say, well, we have nobody else here. We'll be able to see you in like five minutes. But then right before they call your name, somebody walks in and their arm has been severed off and they're literally holding a part of their body in a bag so that they are going to be able to see if it can be stitched back onto their body or if it's gone forever. And immediately you're like, wait, 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 I'm next. No, you're not. Obviously, it's clear this is a more severe issue. This must take precedence. This person needs to go there. I can wait. My thumb will be fine. It's not. My thumbnail might fall off, but it'll probably grow back. It's not going to be that big of a deal. You go ahead. Theological triage is the practice by which we determine how do we, category, how do, how do we categorize which doctrines are so significant that we must say this person is not even a Christian. Uh, Albert Moeller calls this first tier theology. In other words, if these people don't agree, they are not actually saved according to the word of God. What are some of those first tier doctrines? If somebody does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, they are not saved. If somebody does not believe in the Trinity, they are not saved. If somebody does not believe in the virgin birth, 
they are not saved. If somebody does not believe that you are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ, but instead you are justified by what you do, all of your good works, they have misunderstood the gospel and they are not saved. We have to understand that those are times when we would tell a person, you are deceived, I do not believe that you are a Christian. That is the loving approach to take with a person who adheres to those kinds of teachings. We need to be clear about this in our own minds so that we know these issues matter. These are not things that we can gloss over. These are not things that we can simply say, you know what, let's agree to disagree. Because these are not saved people, but they need the gospel and we should be teaching it to them. But there are also second tier issues. These are issues such as how the church does baptism or how we think about the Lord's Supper, or what about the doctrines of grace, or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. These things are also incredibly important things. In fact, these beliefs are so different from one another, especially in the way they result in practice, that those who disagree on these issues will probably naturally seek out different congregations that allow them to worship in accordance with their own convictions. Earlier today, as Jim was giving the pastoral exhortation about membership, that's part of what he was getting at when he was saying, if you can't abide by the the teachings of that local church, you should probably find another local church where you can. So let me give you an example. Let's say that somebody came here from a Presbyterian background who was was sprinkled as a baby, but they had never been baptized as the Bible teaches by immersion. And they were to come to our church and desire to be involved in the church and get become a member of the church. My first order of business would be, I would want to convince them with all of the effort and energy that I have, I think that you've actually got this one wrong. I don't think you got this right. And I want to show you why we believe the things that we believe. And I would be as persuasive as humanly possible, at least from my end, to convince this person of what I believe the Bible says about baptism. And if at the end of the day, he comes to the conclusion, you know what? I just can't agree with you. I just can't believe according to the way that you believe. I sincerely believe that we are to be baptized only by sprinkling as children. That is is the primary mode that we are to... To practice. So if I have kids in your church, are you going to sprinkle them? Absolutely not. Okay, what is the best thing for me to do as a pastor at that point? I think the most loving thing is for me to say, you know, there is a really healthy church that, that's over, you know, not too far from here, that's a Presbyterian church, that I know they preach the gospel, they love the Lord Jesus Christ. I think you might be more comfortable worshiping there with those people. And I think it's a healthy thing for the church to be able to have those kinds of disagreements without dividing in an angry, sinful way, but lovingly saying, I'm thankful that you have the freedom to worship as you are convicted to worship. I am thankful that the, that our country is not one one religion that you are required to be in like uh, England used to be before we separated from them, that if you're not in the Anglican church and you don't go on Sunday, you can literally go to jail. I'm thankful that we have the freedom to have these kinds of disagreements on those second-tier issues especially. So those are things that are really significant but might separate you in terms of where and how you practice worship. Then there are also third-tier issues. These are things that are so small in comparison that within our own local body here, we have a variety of beliefs on them. Probably the chief, chief among them are the doctrines of what we understand to be true about the end times. And we at this church are very comfortable with the fact that there is a variety of understandings about what that will look like. And we are not going to be dogmatic where I think the Bible desires us to learn and know. But I also don't think we should be super harsh and say, you know what, if you disagree with the pastors on this one, you're out. 
You're not part of the faith, or you need to worship somewhere else. There's room for disagreement here, and things like that. Paul, I can guarantee you, never preached with a suit and tie. Should we? Is that something that we are required to do? He did not, so the example is set that we should not. Is that an argument against it? Should we separate over things like that? Of course not. But there are churches where every Sunday morning the pastor will preach in a suit and tie, no matter who it is, and there are churches where they do not. Neither one of those things is ultimately sinful. They're just different convictions that the uh, specific church has in their context. Those are third-tier issues, and we need to understand that we get these things right, then we will approach those kinds of false teachings correctly. So faithful disciples will grow in discernment about which issues fit into which category. And there are two major extremes that we have to avoid when we're thinking through this thing, these things. First, we need to avoid theological liberalism. And secondly, we need to avoid theological fundamentalism. I'm going to quote here from Dr. Moeller's article. It's going to be up here on the screen for you to follow along. The true mark of liberalism is the refusal to admit that first-order theological issues even exist. Liberals treat first-order doctrines as if they were merely third-order in importance, and doctrinal ambiguity is the inevitable result. So pause for a second. Do you see what he's saying? There are many churches, and we can even see this clearly on a national level, there are many congregations or denominations that have basically said, you know what, we don't think it matters what the Bible teaches about the birth of Christ. If somebody believes that Jesus was born of a virgin, that's great. If not, that's okay too. We don't really think it matters too much that you say the Bible is the word of God. We can say that there's truth there, but not that it's all true. We can just kind of take the good and kind of see what we want in there. When that happens, they basically take these first-tier issues and they say, you know what, they're not a big deal. And they imagine that they're of third-tier importance. Fundamentalism, on the other hand, tends toward the opposite error. The misjudgment of true fundamentalism is the belief that all disagreements concern first-order doctrines. Thus, third-order issues are raised to a first-order importance, and Christians are wrongly and harmfully divided. Let me give you an example. King James, is it good or is it bad? King James Version. Of course, it's a great version, and God has used it in incredible ways throughout the history of the church. I am so thankful for the 1611 King James Version of the Bible. I am so thankful that it has been read and memorized and quoted, and that has been used for the sanctification of people for a very long time. However, if you begin to make that an order of first importance, we will only teach out of the King James, then you take a third-tier issue and you make it primary. And I've even met people who have told me, you are not a Christian because you're reading a, a Bible that is not a real Bible. That Bible that you're reading, the English Standard Version, what is that? The Holy Spirit didn't inspire that. You're not a, you're not a saved man if you read from that. You need the King James authorized version. Please understand, that is fundamentalism, where you take a third-order issue and you make it primary. So, brothers and sisters, as we grow together, we need to understand that doctrine matters, truth matters, and we should ask ourselves, what is the best version of the Bible to use in our teaching and preaching? Personally, I think that we have gone a good direction selecting the English Standard Version, and as we discuss that, if you have any questions about that, I would welcome that. I want you to say, why did you use this and not that? So our goal in these discussions should never be to make something a different priority than God has made it to be. Our discussion should be for God's glory. And as Paul says, that God may perhaps grant repentance to those who are in the snare of the devil, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. 
So we've said a lot this morning. I hope that you are encouraged. I hope that you are encouraged to study and to learn and to grow in your knowledge of the truth, that you will be steadfast and immovable as you grow closer to Christ, because to know him more is to love him more. Doctrine is actually a good thing, and I hope that you are learning more about discernment, about how and when to approach those who have disagreements. I hope this helps you to value doctrine and grow in discernment today. Let's pray. Lord, there's much more to be said, and I thank you that your word is not silent after this point, but that next week as we get into chapter 3, we're going to see even more clearly what the result of false doctrine is. God, I just ask that today you would please give us grace to think carefully through these things, to have it impressed upon our heart that you actually desire us to think rightly about you, that it is something that is of such significance that you have preserved so many passages in your holy word for thousands of years so that we might know who you are, that you have not been ambiguous about your character or your commands. God, I pray that today as we come together and we talk to each other, that we would do so lovingly, seeking your glory and the good of the other. God, I also pray that if there is any false teaching, false doctrine that is of such significance that it would reach those second or third tier issues here in our body, that you would cause us to be able to lovingly discuss these things, seeking to bring one another to truth, and that this would never be divisive. God, please give us wisdom as pastors in this church to know how to shepherd and lead faithfully, and that this church would be exemplary, and it would be healthy, and that the body would grow strong in their knowledge of the truth, but also not just an intellectual knowledge, but one that results in action. God, please let us be holy before you. Thank you, God, for the gospel. Thank you for sending your son for us. We pray all these things knowing that he has loved us and invested himself in that love for us by dying for us on the cross and rising again. Lord, we pray that you would please give us joy in the doing this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.